Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in American Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Amico, and today we're joined by Madison Moore, author of the new book, Fabulous, The Rise of the Beautiful Eccentric. The book is published by Yale University Press. As Madison makes clear at the beginning of his book, it's not a history of the idea of fabulousness or any kind of set understanding and display of the fabulous, because the fabulous is by definition ephemeral able to appear in any place, at any time, by any body, and always on the move. Of course, there are specific communities of people who embrace fabulousness and other communities that actively police it. But the primary sites where it is most highly valued and expressed are physical spaces, including the site of the body itself. And so Madison offers a chapter on how to work a look, as well as one on the club scene, particularly the line to get into the club, and another chapter on the catwalk. Most important is Madison's firsthand involvement in these sites of fabulousness. He is a participant and organizer in and of the worlds that he then not merely, quote, explains, but actively demonstrates in his scholarship and life. This gives the book and his work more broadly real ethical stakes. Madison Moore is a DJ, cultural critic, and assistant professor of gender, sexuality, and women's studies. He's also creative director and resident DJ at Opulence, an art collective and queer techno party. And he has home bases in New York, London, and Berlin. Madison, welcome to the show. Hi. Now, I have to say that Madison and I both received PhDs from the American (laughs) Studies program at Yale University. So Madison, tell us how this book, this project of fabulousness, emerged and diverged out of your time in that academic department? Where did this book come from? Um, Well, first of all, thank you for having me um, on the show. I'm so excited to be in this exchange and talk about the ideas around um, the book. Um, You know, it's interesting that I've just uh, had my 36th birthday. And so I would say that I've been writing this book for 36 years um, Mm -hmm. and that sort of... When I, you know, the kind of background that informs the book really is my upbringing by, you know, growing up in Ferguson, Missouri, um, in a solidly working class family where we didn't have um, much, but we always looked good and Mm -hmm. where sort of style was a premium. um, And my grandmother wouldn't let us out of the house unless we were like presentable, which of course has a whole history, um, you know, around like black respectability politics and whatnot. So for me, like um, these ideas about style and self-presentation and creating space on your own terms were brewing already when I was five and 10 and at church and, um, you know, hanging out with my, uh, you know, at family barbecues or whatever and seeing how much joy the woman in my family took and the people in my family took in kind of getting dressed up. 
So when I got to Yale, I knew that I was interested in, already interested in questions of fashion. And, um, you know, um, I knew that um, Valerie Steele, who got her PhD in history at Yale, um, who was the chief curator of the museum at FIT in New York, um, I was like, okay, well, that's like, there's a lineage there. You know, someone, there's already people thinking about fashion in that space. So, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think this is, there's a lot of different pieces. I mean, when I was working with um, Joe Roach, who was really one of my early champions and who was um, really helped me shape the work. Um, I remember we, when I, we had a, we had a meeting um, in my early days in the program and he said, "What do you like? What do you want to? What do you want to work on?" And I said, "Well, I don't really, I don't really know." And so he said, "What do you like to do in your spare time?" And I said, "Well, I like shopping, um, reading fashion magazines, and going to clubs." <laughs> and he said, "Well, why don't you study that?" And mm. I was like, "Those aren't real topics. What do you mean? I can't study that stuff. That's not real, you know." And yeah. so, in fact, like the whole, my whole kind of time at Yale was actually learning how to fuse the body bodily knowledge that I already had, as I've said, you know, that I grew up thinking about these questions already, and then learning how to tie that to asking questions around that and tying that into histories, other histories, you know, during my time kind of in the program. Right. It's a really so, roundabout answer, but yeah, there you go. Well, and it speaks to the the power of, of um, finding the right advisor to, yeah. to show you, to say that your way is okay. Yeah. And, and your way is uh, a way that is that is intertwined with practice, and so I w- want you to talk a little bit about what you call the theory of fabulousness as a practice. And the book references, you know, theorists that people may or may not know, but in, in the end, it doesn't really matter who you're referencing. It actually matters. The, your experience itself is what matters. Um, mm-hmm. Your own history. And so I'm wondering what that means, that your practice, your life of fabulousness or moments of it is the theory, is knowledge, tells us something. Well, you know, I think it's, I I think that for me, you know, hmm, it's a good question because I I remember being so frustrated when I was sort of um, in seminars you know, in, in school and even till now, you know, writing, you know, articles for publication in journals, um, academic journals, where folks say, oh, your style, your writing style is too journalistic, or it's too personal, or it's not sort of scholarly enough. And, um, you know, it's too that, fabulous. <laughs> oh, I wasn't going to say that. Thank you for saying it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, that like there's basically that there's something wrong, right, with being able to be a bit creative and being a bit, you know, bring bringing some sort of effervescence and kind of a bit of um, yeah personality to scholarly writing. I think that there's such a way that scholarly writing can often be um, really in the service of folks who have PhDs. Um, And I knew that I wanted to write a book that would actually hopefully be read, that could sort of hopefully be taught and read in university spaces, but then also more importantly for me, read by a general interest audience um, by folks who haven't gone through sort of um, Ivy League institutions or any institutions um, who can pick up the book and they can they can read the stories and resonate with them. 
the, the stories can resonate with them and that they can maybe they've not heard about, you know, sort of bell hooks or Francesco Royster, but now they know about them, um, you know, and for right. me, that's the, that's the bigger mission. I, I would say that like, I had such resistance in sort of um, owning my own writing, you know, and owning that it's okay to sort of be experimental and playful as I try to be in my, in my work. Um, and that that's another mode sort of, of theory. So yeah, when I say that it's like, you know, theory, uh, you know, it's theory from the streets and all this kind of stuff. It's like, cause it's has real in time, re- real time stakes. There's real things at stake. Um, right. yeah. Yeah. I mean, playful is an interesting word that you're writing could be playful. And that is what, uh, people may, especially in the Academy police. And it's a, it's a question of joy and, and, and basically not being able to share in their own joy and your joy. And we're going to get back to that because yeah. we talk, you talk a lot about the connection between fabulousness and joy and especially um, the gift of joy through fabulousness. But let's let's think about the underside, I guess, of joy, for lack of a better word. Um, you have a sentence at the beginning, and this speaks to the question of a larger audience and the real ethical stakes. You write... Quote, you can't understand fabulousness unless you get that it emerges from trauma, duress, exclusion, exhaustion, and depression. And that in some ways, being fabulous is the only thing that can get us out of the bed in the morning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So good morning to you in London. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I think that's a wonderful statement because it's it's broad, but it's very clear. And as you say, it it opens up on to any number of people identifying where they may find themselves in the, in terms of the question of fabulousness. So what does that mean that it emerges from trauma? Yeah. You know, I think, I think that from, I think that for me, um, you know, there's, this isn't, this isn't the sort of first book that's about, you know, style and questions of glamour and spectacle, you know? Um, but what I, what I, what I realized when I was kind of doing my kind of work, uh, and research is that so many of the books are focusing on the one hand, um, on Hollywood, um, and on celebrities and by extension, um, white people, um, white women, um, especially. Um, and, you know, it was frustrating to me that there was almost, in what in least in what I could find, not very much conversation around style politics or um, yeah self presentation in a kind of glamorous way, and also thinking about race and queerness and gender and all these things. Um, and so that was one that was one part of the equation. The other part of it is that in doing the interviews that I've done for the book, and also uh, thinking about my own experience with you know kind of style and moving through social space. Um, is that it actually come it it comes from um, the traumatic spaces where you think that you know you actually decide to choose you um, instead of deciding uh, instead of choosing the systems and norms that oppress us um, every day if that makes sense so I think I was trying to marry on the one hand or try to figure out how to talk about style and fabulousness particularly with a queer and a color um, and non-binary lens while also thinking about, Hmm, well, how do these, what are the, you know, what are the stakes and how do people circulate? It isn't just about, you know, getting all dressed up, you know, it's about getting dressed up maybe sometimes, but then also sometimes feeling like you can't because the pressures are so strong and you know that like 
if you are in your favorite look or whatever, or even just even a lipstick or whatever it is your thing is, you know, that you might mm-hmm. go outside to get a sandwich and you could be verbally harassed, you could be physically harassed, you yourself could be afraid and, you know, uh, have, um, you know, just feel the trauma of other people staring at you or pointing at you or making it known that you are sort of, um, you know, something that they think should be sort of gawked at. Um, and these are all traumatic things. Um, and so my, I guess my interest in fabulousness is people, you know, there's a turning point. People basically decide to give up on these norms um, and embrace themselves on their own terms. And, and what I like to think of as a sort of um, escape hatch or plan B from, you know, uh, or out of kind of normativity. You know, I think about right. how I think about my own sort of grounder profile pick or whatever dating app. Sometimes it's like, okay, do I use the lipstick one or do I use the more mask presenting one? Um, and why do I have to even decide? <laughs> you know, um, or even just yesterday I've had, um, there was someone who came, I had a party at my uh, house and someone told me that they've just recently come out as um, non-binary and they are, um, re- they were really afraid, but felt so excited to be in this space. And, you know, um, uh, even at the party that I do, you know, people always, the, my opulence party, you know, people always say that they're so excited to have this space where they can just sort of breathe. <laughs> do you know what right. I mean? Without yeah. having the sort of um, eye of being policed um, around all the time. Right. So there are these these spaces like the, the parties that you host or certain clubs that provide other a community. Um, but but also, as you, you were saying, uh, most people can't stay in those spaces uh, yeah. all day and night and they have to go get a sandwich or they have yes. to go, go to the store. And um, uh, yet they still can be fabulous. They, they still have style and yet it is risky. It's not, it's not, it's not a completely safe way of being, except of course the risk opens up onto life and joy and all these other things. I mean, I guess just to get get this out of the way, can we just talk about the difference between style and say fashion or trends? Because it seems like style is something that um, is risky, is dangerous, is personal, can happen in bursts and moments and, and, and fashion or trend is, is something that you fit into. That is actually yeah. not that not that risky. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I think that, like, I would say that you know, sort of fashion and kind of trends um, are, as you say, more like what's kind of the vibe, um, what's kind of you know popping off right now, sort of in terms of popular culture or kind of visual culture, what the celebrities are doing or whatever. Um, which means it's tied more to industry and it's tied more to kind of, I would say, yeah image cap like flows of flows of capital in ways like it's like what h&m or what vogue says is in or whatever and i think that style real style is being figuring out what you want to be or not knowing even what that is and playing with that kind of on your own terms whenever so today it might be this but next week it could be completely something else um so for me style is more personalized and it's more reflecting kind of like how you imagine yourself today. Um, whereas I think style, or sorry, as I think of uh, trends and fashion are much more tied to industry and much more sort of tied to what the high street um, says you should be wearing, if that makes sense. Right. And, and style is an invitation for others to play. 
I would argue, right? I mean, it does it. It's immediately social, and although yeah. it although it invites easily denigration or even violence, uh, it also invites play. I mean, it's um, a it's a call and response. I think you know. I mean, there have been so many times where I've been like, "Oh my god, girl, you look cute with that lipstick. Let me put on some lipstick like that," you know, or right. whatever, you know, or like. In fact, it's in hanging out with um a, a sort of crew of um you know queer POC in London over the years that I have been like, oh. Let me, I kind of like lipstick. Let me see how this works for me. And so now I've been wearing like this sort of blue lipstick. Um, and it's because, again, as you say, and as it is, style is social and it's a call and response. So, um, yeah, and it might be that, you know, you might see someone on the tube and you you really like their haircut and maybe challenge challenges you to think about how you want to be, you know, or pushes you to think, well, I can't really, you know, I've, so... A key example is I've got these um, these shoes. I think they're I think they're um, photographed in the book. They're these yes. black and these black and white spiked shoes with like a heelless kind of wedge, and they look very space age, very alien. They're very sickening. Um, but uh, every time people see them, they're like, "Oh, I could I could never wear those. I could never wear them." Um, and it's like, "Well, why not? Who says you couldn't wear them?" Um, and Yesterday at this party that I was speaking of, you know, I, I had all my heels downstairs and everyone was sort of trying them on and kind of, you know, feeling themselves in them. And I actually ended up giving away one of the pair, one of my pair to oh. someone who um, I felt really needed it and really needed them to sort of like, yeah, help them kind of come into who they would like to be. Do you know what I mean? Right. Um, I mean, that's just back to the point about fabulousness as a gift. Literally, you gave that yes. which which someone felt joy in wearing or yes. in being with you, you then you actualize that and said, you can take it. It's yours. Yeah. The fabulousness as much as the shoe. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it's, a, it's an all in one package, darling. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, but yeah. yeah, it was just such a moment of joy for me to see this person in the shoes and how much they were like coming into themselves. And like, they just like, it was, it was, it was a cute look, you know? And, um, what I'm learning in how the book is sort of circulating, especially um, on social media, is, you know, um, people have been sending me beautiful um, selfies of them getting the, of themselves getting the book in the mail um, or like putting on a look and then posing with the book, you know, or and these are people that I don't know. You know, they're just people on Instagram who tag me and I get I, I end up seeing the post. You know what I mean? And yeah, so for me, wonderful. this is like so important that it's like circulating precisely that way, you know, that it's like, hopefully we'll be instructional in, you know, queer studies courses and, you know, courses around kind of race um, and intersectionality and kind of pop culture, but also even more that like the girls are getting the book and they're, they're feeling it, you know, it's like really speaking to them and helping them kind of reimagine how they want to circulate. Right. And I, I think that um, those, it, makes me think that those who who denigrate or uh, people who don't fit in whose fabulousness is experienced as an affront to others that the joke is ultimately on those people because because it's a sign that they've lost something about themselves and you know that's that's a feeling of joy that's a feeling of happiness that they can't actually partake in not just someone else's happiness but their own mm-hmm and yeah. I, and I think that, that applies to not just mar- marginalized people, but all sorts of people who feel like they already fit into normative standards uh, that they are losing out as well. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one of the questions that someone asked once is, um, will this book 
you know, will this book make me fabulous? And for me, like, um, I'm, I'm less interested in that kind of, um, self-help narrative and, and more interested in like, if, if you read the book and if it allows you to see how sort of these systems oppress us and how you are policing yourself. And if you read the book and if it makes you kind of question those things and give up, then perhaps yes, you know, and if it allows you to sort of, um, you know, play with your identity and realize that identity isn't fixed and stable and you can be who you want at any moment. Um, you know, understanding the risks of that as well. Um, but choosing, choosing that kind of uncertain path rather than, you know, making yourself fit into this box that uh, wasn't even constructed for you with you in mind in the first place. Right. And that it, it doesn't have to be a lifelong decision that yes, that being fabulous hap- can happen at any moment. Um, and uh, in, in small doses, in l- yes. large amounts, whatever it means for you, right? What yes. you, you throughout the book, one of the the most persuasive parts for me was you're drawing attention to these moments that again appear at any in any time um, mm-hmm. on any body. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's not it's not isolated to a particular group of people, um, but that but that it nonetheless still comes out of the question of of if not being traumatized, at least hiding something about yourself yes. or feeling that you can't express something about yes. yourself. Yes, you know, and I want to be clear that you know I don't think that. Um, like everybody needs to be fabulous right now or sort of, you know, be excommunicated from society or whatever, but that like, you know, living under these norms isn't helpful for anybody. (laughs) Um, And I think that like, you know, um, embracing the uncharted path, embracing the kind of risky nature of, you know, choosing to be you on different terms, um, and also, you know, I mean, what I've, what I've also told people is, you know, as you <clears throat> step into yourself more, you know, it is also about surrounding yourself with community and people who, and folks who like, um, also kind of get it, you know, I mean, I think that people often ask me in, um, you know, uh, sort of public conversations about the book, you know, when did I decide that I was, you know, non-binary or when did I sort of come out or whenever these things. And, you know, as I've said, I've only started wearing like the lipstick, for instance, like three months ago, you know, and Mm -hmm. I just, I've just turned 36. So, you know, but, but also at 15, I remember looking up to folks like Michael Jackson and Prince because they were able to be so expansive in kind of their gender and in their kind of in their blackness as well. So, um, yeah, I think it's, it's a journey and, um, you, you always, you know, you shape shift. And I think what I want is for people to understand that possibility of shape shifting, um, and not being, not necessarily being the same body all the time every day. Um, right. And, and that happens in different ways or over time. So when you're younger, and you can't get into the club, you still can look at Prince or listen to Prince. And, yes. and you and you can read your book. And I don't I don't mean that <laughs> I don't mean that just because you're you're here talking to us about your book, but as you say, people are reading the book and taking pictures of it on Instagram. So mm-hmm. 
what what is the power of of social media networking technology and the like uh, for the expression of of fabulousness, especially among p- younger people? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really fascinating. Um, I mean, I remember. I think, you know, I also sort of grew up um, on the internet and um, I remember being in chat rooms on gay.com, you know, talking to people, just trying to connect with anyone, you know, um, in my like Ferguson, in the basement, my basement room in Ferguson, Missouri, you know. Um, Now the girls have YouTube and they have Instagram and they have, you know, they can type in, you know, non-binary or coming out in YouTube and like have like a whole series of videos um, of people, you know, showing that this is, well, first of all, that they're not alone. Um, in addition to that, there are also, you know, selfie threads. So there are groups um, on Facebook that are private that are, you know, like queer non-binary, for instance, um, uh, in London or whatever, or queer non-binary in Atlanta or wherever, let's say. And it's just like people asking advice about how they get through the day and how they kind of, you know, it's sort of a support network, but then also people will be like, I'm feeling a bit low. Let's start a selfie thread. And then suddenly you'll just have 500 amazing people, you know, sending selfies of themselves. Some, some of them are like in looks, some of them are just being like, here's, here's me right now at work board or whatever. But it is about as, as, as it was when I was on gay.com and as it is now with Instagram and YouTube, it's about finding community and trying to feel like you're not alone in this. Um, and I think for me, that's, what's so exciting about, um, you know, what young people have access to today. I mean, speaking of the party that I had yesterday, I know we we keep going back to that, but I'm a party girl, um, is, you know, there were these, so it was, it was always, it was my birthday party, but then also there was like a big neighborhood party. Um, so, and I live in a place where all the sort of, um, houses are connected. There's like a shared courtyard. And so, um. At one point, there were like, I would say, 15, literally 15 or even 20, like, kids who came over um, between, I would say, ages of like 8 and 15. Um, Because, you know, they were so excited by all of the, all of us people in the house. Um, We were, you know, sissies, you know, with heels and like all this. And they were just so, like, there were these two boys who I would say maybe were 8, 10, and they wanted, they were desperate to try the heels on. And they were just, they had no, like, concept that it was like faux faux pas or forbidden or anything they were like oh my god yes these are amazing i feel so confident in these i feel so powerful in these and to me that was such a beautiful moment because like i don't know that when when i was that age 30 years ago or whatever 28 years ago like that i would have had that same sense of oh i can just do this thing you know and not feel policed or sort of um you know uh it sounds to me like you created a club type atmosphere in the courtyard and that it was a product <laughs> is a product of the energy and the people that gives others the permission to be themselves or yeah. whatever word you want to use. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit, well, we'll talk more about clubs. I mean, just want to go back to the question of, of selfies and connect connecting uh, through these communities online. You know, there's this ongoing critique of yeah. selfie culture and narcissism mm-hmm. and, but you really, you make this really important point that it's, it's actually different in terms of if you look at who is taking these pictures, why yes. and how they're using them to connect to other people. Yes. And so that it's, it's a medium to shape, to control, to take control of one's own image. Yes. And that's, that's the very opposite of the kind of narcissistic selfie culture that, that, you know, mainstream 
uh, media critique. So can you talk a little bit about that difference? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I think, you know, one of the real eye openers for me in thinking around this, you know, of course, there's like, you know, um, you know, kind of lines of thought like Christopher Lash um, thinking about right. narcissism. But then there's also for me, the great um, Minha Tifam, who writes in Asians Wear Clothes on the Internet, which is a book about, you know, um, style politics online um, in uh, how Asian Americans present themselves on sort of precisely in selfies. And what she says is that basically, yeah, selfies are pe- are ways that people present themselves on the, it's like the right to be seen, basically, is what she says. And so for me, that was so powerful in thinking about fabulousness and sort of how these selfies circulate um you know in these in these spaces because it's like i have the right to be not only do i have the right to be me but i have the right to be seen on my own terms and yes you know selfies are carefully constructed not only do you take the image but you put the filter on it you choose you take 10 photos and then choose the one that you want to use you choose the hat the hashtags you know it's really giving you permission to be that person and be seen like how you want to be seen right um i don't want to give too much value to sort of uh, yeah, I mean, because at the end of the day, you know, having um, 100,000 followers or 10 million followers or whatever doesn't, you know, um, pay the rent or pay the bills. And it also becomes a little bit of a of a, of a sort of digital zoo, as um, Alok Bade-Minen talks about. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think that, you know, any technology can be used for, for good and evil. And I think that when thinking about sort of selfie culture and kind of the online bits, you, there's both, right? So it's sort of both and it's right. It's, um, yeah, it can be used as a digital zoo, but then it can also be used as a space for, you know, presenting yourself on your own terms and kind of trying to find community and outreach, you know, like without social media, how would people reach out to me as instantly as they have been now since the book come out? Do you know what I mean? Like that's for me, one clear example, people have decided to send me selfies of them of the book with the book. And that's a way of also creating a connection. Do you know yeah, what I mean? it's an it's an extension of your writing. Actually, I, I would argue it's an extension of of the book itself, and that you begin writing with and through other people, mm-hmm. writing th- writing through their looks, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, yeah, this although it's problematic when 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 people overly invest in their life, you know, online, so to speak, it is a domain that cannot be discounted, mm-hmm. and and also it makes us think about the power of surfaces mm-hmm. and appearance and that essentially you know the world is visual we have eyes so so when we're even in real space in space with real bodies we're, it's still a question of the visual yes. and the screen yes. the screen just draws our attention to that more you you quote um critic Virginia Pastrell saying, mm-hmm. quote, our real selves are the ones wearing makeup and high heels mm-hmm. we, we care about surfaces and mm-hmm. and I, I think that that's that's crucial. Uh, and, and it's, we're talking about the surface of the body, first mm-hmm. of all, you know, that, that you're adorning the surface of the body. So there's a substance there already and it's inseparable, but, mm-hmm. but, but what does that mean that, that, that our, our real selves are the ones wearing makeup and high heels? I think it's, you know, um, I think it's, it's about allowing yourself to, to have permission to be, you know, because of things like, you know, uh, you know, s- sexism and misogyny and transmisogyny and racism, you know, if you choose to present your, you know, we, I, I think that we, I think that we make subtle choices every day 
to present ourselves in ways so that we can like survive and or be safe. I think that this is something that most people kind of think about. I think that what is where the fabulousness kicks in is when you you decide to, yeah, be you on your own terms, despite the worlds that you circulate in or or have to circulate in. Um, And even though that might not be valued in those spaces, you know, so, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I, I think that's for me what it is. It's about choosing to, to do you, despite the fact that, you know, the spaces that you're circulating in are not necessarily made for you. Do you know what, like? Yeah, right, exactly. And it, and it, it is sort of adopting um, the minoritizing rhetoric assigned to marginalized people, but like living living through that rhetoric in a way that that tests others' fears. So the fabulous person who who may be called sick or even, or even yes. physically harassed is saying... Through their fabulousness, I'll show you what sick looks like. I'll yes. show you. How, I'll show you how to slay. You know? I'll show you. I, yes, and and it, and it is a, it is that sort of you know snatching back of you know that language um, visually and through yes, style. Right. You know, um, so you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like a visual snatch. Yeah, is the fabulous interchange that that responds to the the oppression um yes. but, but also in a in a in a sort of embrace all embracing way like says well if you can be a part of this if you want you're choosing not to and you're not going to tell you know you're not going to hinder this part of myself and i'll give you back what you gave me but in a way that shows ex- explo- exploits essentially your own denigration of me to my own use and joy <laughs> yes no it's like um you think i'm sick well i'm actually sickening and it's not my fault right. that you choose boredom, you know? Exactly. Um, yeah. You know? Um, and so, like, that's the, for me, like, that's what I would love for for folks to, uh, the place that I would like for people, uh, love for people to get to, you know? Um, I can't tell you, yeah, how many times um, I have had to police, you know, over, I, I do it, I do it less now. Um, but it's it also, even the fact that, like, even that I'm, hyper aware of these systems and how they work that even I still feel policed to kind of conform is like annoying and is the kind of thing that I would like to burst through. Um, but it also shows you how powerful these kind of systems are. And when I was speaking to someone yesterday or the other day about like, you know, um, sort of kind of, yeah, embracing their body as they are and that it's, you know, that, um, you know, if you want to wear heels, you should, or if you want to be however you want, it's fine. But that, you know, that fear you have pre-exists you even being born. Like it's, it's like hundreds of years of like systems of normativity that have been like beat into the culture so that when you're born, right. it are, you know, it's like, of course you have fear. And cause you've been in social worlds that have taught you that you should be afraid to be this way. Um, but the hard work is unlearning that fear and that it's not like a, like, Oh, today, haha, I've discovered the secret and now I'm not afraid. You know, it's like, actually it's a process and it's a to and a fro. And some days you might feel like you want to absolutely slay, but then other days you might feel like you can't because you just, you've just had enough of being, you know, a feeling afraid or you just want to just go get the sandwich. <laughs> you know, you don't right. want to be bothered actually. At all. Right. It's the same with, with coming out, you know, people think that, coming out as gay or yes. sexual or whatever is a one-time 
uh, event and then you're out and before you were in. But it's a constant negotiation of different spaces and expectations of people. And so you're always going to be feeling the potential, if, if not the reality, of, of pressure mm-hmm. um, to make decisions on whether to say uh, or do something in a particular Ooh. situation. And I mean, yes, we can see this as like, well, we're not fully liberated, or it, which is which is true, but that's an ideal that is that is probably impossible and negates the fact that life is full of yes. of, of trauma in all sorts of ways yes. that have to do with all sorts of things. And so, to be aware though that some days you're you don't have the energy for a certain kind of expression, or you or even that in some moments you feel like you're closeted or can't be fabulous. That to be aware of that is what's actually necessary in order to then be fabulous at some other time yeah that they both kind of work together these these energies and i think it's also important to 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 sort of say that you know i think that when people do fabulousness it's often not even i mean it's not even or, or ever for other people um it's for you so sometimes what i have issue you know it with is when people are like oh my god yes you look amazing yeah whatever and it's like Sometimes I don't need to be acknowledged or, I, you know, it's like I do this or we do this or people do this because it's how we feel and it's uh, how we want to be. It's not about like always right. about being sort of, yeah, the capturable moment for your camera phone. Do you know what I mean? Or Yeah, right. Yeah. There's a burden. There's an extra burden on people who are more visually fabulous. Yes carry the weight of, of, for others. Yes. They, they stand in as that special person who can be special and that we can celebrate as special. And also but yeah, to, this is extra burden. And also to be entertainment really, you know, um, it's, right, about, it's yeah. about your sort of like entertainment. So, Oh my God. Yes. You know, like, yes, queen now. And it's like, okay, calm down. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, I think that it's, um, there's a there's a lot of layers to it. Yeah, um, and in some ways that like seeing someone as the as the special token expression of um, fabulousness just kind of reinforces the norms, right? It just sort of keeps the the difference in place. This us versus them. Where mm-hmm. where you you talk about how you say that fabulousness is the power to abstract. Yes. Norms, you know, yes. so you so you play you play with the word sick, you play with the word slay, um, and e- this is a this is verbal, this is visual, this is auditory, mm-hmm. and and uh, to abstract norms, it's not to show things are not so clear cut as our conceptual understandings might make them, you know, out to be, um, but to abstract norms to me sort of resonates with the world of art actually and what mm-hmm. art does, so. I'm, and you have many examples uh, and interviews with people in the book who are also in the contemporary art world, um, v- vocalists, uh, performers, um, designers. Mm-hmm. So what, what is, why, how do you find the connection between, you know, in this moment in time um, across the world, really, how fabulousness um, and, and beautiful eccentricity ties in with, with the art world and, and the contemporary art scene? And where, where do they come together and what do they do for each other, if not this being the same thing? Well, I think that this is um, super, you know, la- layered um, and complex. Firstly, because when you look at kind of queer art and performance, um, a lot of it emerges not necessarily um, in and even are and even you know pieces are not necessarily meant or destined for like the kind of imperial contemporary art gallery space 
um, but rather emerge in nightclubs and in bars and pubs and really venues and spaces that are at the fringes. Um, and that's because, you know, oftentimes these cultural institutions, these art institutions don't know or have language for um, making sense of the work that's happening on the fringes. Right. And so, you know, artists are forced, um, you know, to, to, to kind of find and, and, and even thrive in, you know, finding um, uh, spaces, spaces elsewhere. So I, I think that what you're seeing a lot of at the moment in terms of the art world is museums, um, major museums and spaces that are drawing on kind of trends of queer nightlife and like bringing these bodies and spaces and communities and, um, you know, uh, collectives into their spaces um, in a lot of ways to make them seem relevant again. <laughs> um, and so, you know, um, for instance, last year there was a, an exhibition at Tate Britain. It was um, uh, queer British art from like 1867 to I think 1967 or four or something like this. And um, the exhibition was, um, you know, yeah, a history of homosexuality in the UK basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but what they didn't really do is include works um, by women and people of color, especially. So around as a way around that, they programmed um, a whole series of kind of events uh, around nightlife and kind of queer collectives in London, queer color collectives in London that are creating space and art in nightlife. They basically parachuted them into the Tate um, Britain to kind of, yeah, um, fill the gaps that they had curatorially in the show. Um, so I think that, like, on the one hand, for me, like, everything that's interesting pop culture-wise or aesthetically is happening in nightclubs or these venues at the fringes, these pop-up theater spaces, these fringe, you know, like, a friend of mine has um, basically a um, a um, a sort of loft or sort of apartment that he uses to stage art events and like queer fringe performance you know it's things like this that where people go to create community that then kind of eventually find their way into the mainstream kind of art spaces um and i say this just to say that it's happening you know i don't i don't um uh, yeah um i think it's a tricky topic um but i say it just to say that it's that it's definitely happening um you know, uh, and um, I I prefer like queer art and performance sort of that's still on the fringes. Um, and, you know, um, yeah, right, I, right, yeah, and also <laughs> that that it is there are institutional politics as there are in so many art forms that is um, that makes it difficult for certain certain forms of of expression, especially highly politicized ones and ones politicized in very personal ways, um, to, to show up in traditional gallery spaces, but also the very nature of fabulousness as ephemeral and sort of of the moment, um, poses a particular challenge, I guess, to capture in an exhibit, uh, about, you know, something such as fabulousness. Mm -hmm. But I, I, beyond that and as you suggest there is nonetheless a connection between artistic practice in general and and being fabulous and and, yes go ahead i mean i think this is what i one of the my major kind of aims in the book is to show that it's like you know if you look at folks like lee bowery 
you know, and if you look at folks like in London, um, an, an amazing kind of club kid called Dr. Muir, like these people are performance artists. Um, Dr. Muir is like um, a DJ and a party host, and he is uh, an amazing example of a kind of film noir, I don't know, personality, drag queen i don't know um but basically they are you know completely they paint themselves like silver Hmm. so i don't think i've ever but silver and even oftentimes like like white like white 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 um and it's you know i think that's like for me that dr muir is like a prime example of like you know the kind of aesthetic genius that goes into creating yourself or to creating a look and to constantly imagine something new every day or whenever you want to do it you know um, and I think that's what I was also trying to do in the book is really think about fabulousness, not as something that is, um, you know, celebrate, not something that's only kind of Hollywood glamour and kind of, you know, um, Beyonce level or, um, you know, pop star level or whatever. I mean, I think I, I, I tried very hard. I think, okay. So when I was initially, doing the book and the dissertation it was i was more interested in kind of like celebrities and kind of glamour and these big worlds but then i realized actually um and this is because i was um at the time of doing the dissertation and um being in yale i also worked in the art world in new york and um in sort of magazines and um these kind of spaces and i didn't um know at the time that like uh yeah i think i was going through my orals or whatever so third year and i didn't know that like my working at interview magazine was gonna somehow end up in the book or that it would be that i just wanted to do it because i liked it you know and i i i felt like i I need to sort of be sort of excuse me in these kind of um yeah pop culture worlds in new york i just wanted to be where the thick of it was so i didn't know that it was going to shape my worldview in ways and it did because i realized that actually you know when you i mean i worked on so many photo shoots and i realized oh actually there's a whole apparatus behind this so like you know when oprah or whomever appears on the cover on the cover on the cover of a magazine um there are countless interns and photo assistants and editors and pr agents and messengers um involved in a single photo shoot so it's not it's actually like an entire apparatus you know and i was able to somehow something happened basically and it was great for me to be doing coursework and orals at the same time that i was working in these spaces because it made me really connect the dots between the theory and the everyday of like how these industries industries actually work right and so i I made the choice where i was like actually do you know what like i don't want to write about celebrities because they have an entire machine. Of course, they're fabulous. They have like they can they get free gowns from like Dior. Of course, you know. Um, and so I was like, well, that's not that's actually not that interesting. And it was in working in those worlds that I realized that. So uh, that's when I made the choice that actually I'm interested in folks in the club worlds and people who don't have access to those systems, but do it on their own term, but do it on their own, right? And so often they are students at Central St. Martin's um, and they're at Parsons and they're at kind of, you know, um, RISD and they're at at these art schools and they are just really creative and bursting with ideas and aesthetic energy. And they, yeah, create themselves anew because they have to and it's a need. Um, And so for me, that was thinking about how, thinking about people doing fabulousness as artists and as aesthetic geniuses and as creative powerhouses and kind of innovators was way more interesting for me than 
like the celebrity who gets to wear Alexander McQueen because you know they have a you know deal with KCD PR agency. <laughs> no, I, I completely agree that it is. <laughs> ultimately uninteresting the process of being fabulous as a celebrity whereas the process of being fabulous the expression among other people um is not only more interesting but is where the aesthetic value the ethics actually lie yes and so you talk about obviously we a few times now the club as this crucial oh. crucible <laughs> as this crucial sorry about space. that <laughs> um tell me about the club and why it's why it's integral to understanding this nexus of fabulosity Um, yeah, so this is a, a huge one for me. Um, I don't know where to start. Um, I, for me, the club always represented a space. I, I've always been like a club person. So even when I was, you know, in Ferguson, Missouri, my cousin, um, she's younger than me, but she had a driver's license and a car and I didn't. So I call her up and be like, "Girl, take me to the club, please. Can we please? Can we just go? Because I couldn't, I couldn't get there otherwise." Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, it was about you know finding community and being in a space that was kind of alive and thumping. And um, I think as I've gotten older and been to different clubs in different places in different cities and at different ages, you know, um, I see like the the vitality they have not only for people who are um, yeah seeking community, but then also for when you think about drag queens and party people and club kids and also DJs, you know, there are so many ideas that emerge and that are birthed in nightclubs. Um, Whether it's, you know, say you're at a bar and you're a graphic design student at St. Martin's or Parsons and you end up talking to someone who has a cool project they're working on and what they want to work on and somehow you end up working together, you know, um, on a thing. Um, so basically like seeing the clubs less as, or also as spaces of entertainment and fun and kind of hedonism, but also as a space that is an incubator for ideas and that generate other possibilities, not only in terms of like the art itself, but even in you, like there's so many people that I know who, um, including myself, who sort of embraced DJing and became DJs because they were like going to clubs, you know, um, or, you know. Yeah, so I think this is this is a huge one for me. But basically, I think that clubs are ba- spaces of queer world making, and they're spaces of community, and they're spaces of kind of music and electricity. And I don't really, I'm skeptical of terms like safe space, but I think that they allow at least um, a portal to another dimension, at least temporarily, um, for you know, it's you know, a couple of hours, or if you're in Berlin, up to fifty six hours um, um, uh, that you can sort of yeah. Um, play and have a bit of a break from the everyday and a little bit of a break from the norms that um, are oppressing you um, and whatever your social situation is. Right. So I'm just thinking, you know, what is it about the club that allows for these ideas to be generated and shared? And you're saying it's the playfulness, it's the letting go, and it's just being around people who want to be sharing themselves uh, with others. Yeah, I think it's one you wanting to share, but also, I mean, you go out, I mean, you're in a good mood, right? I think. Okay, so right. Like, yeah, it's the joy. And, it's the pleasure. It's the joy. Yeah, you're with your friends and you're there. To, I don't think, yeah. I mean, okay, I don't want to be one of I think people, people maybe go out and maybe they're not in a great mood, but I think in general, if you go out, like maybe you're in a good mood. Um, and so you're more open to possibilities and connecting with people in ways that you wouldn't or that maybe seem faux pas 
on right. a day-to-day basis, like like nine to five or whatever, do you know? Um, right. But now we we have to talk about the question of getting into the club because you you spend many pages. Well, actually, you frame the chapter on the club in terms of standing in line waiting. And I must say, it is a little bit anxiety producing for me and maybe for others. Like, would I get in? And now you 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 actually turn that question on its head and say, well, getting in is not is not a question of exclusion based on like a, uh, a decided status beforehand. You know, it's not the minoritizing logic that, that brings people to, that, that people go to the club to escape. It's actually what you call curation that, that the club is curating the experience, but still, it seems to me that there is a question of, and real anxiety about whether you would get in or not. So, so what is the place of the line and standing in line and being, being chosen by the door person? or not. Yeah, I mean I think that there are um a couple of things um at stake here. Um of course, you know, door policies are exclusionary and they're going to uh I mean it's you know, people get in or they don't and that is um a discriminatory that's a discriminatory practice just on its own. So acknowledging that and also acknowledging that like, you know, um it also it is generally used um door policies are generally used to uh, police or protect whiteness. Um, so to keep, you know, black brown bodies out, you know, there are so right. many clubs and parties in, um, you know, I don't, I think you see less of this sort of in the UK, um, but definitely like I've seen in, in um, spaces in the U S where they might have a line out, like a thing outside that says, you know, no backward hats, no tank tops, no, whatever, da da da. Basically, like no black people is what right. they're saying, um, and this sort of very coded language that's you know kind of around style, um, or like fashion items. So, <clears throat> yeah, I, I would say that my interest in door policies came. I was I was writing about Studio Fifty Four because I was very interested in um, just the kind of hype machine around it, um, and you know not necessarily uh how do i say this yeah basically yeah i guess the question for me was why are people so desperate to get into this space (laughs) um like uh you know and so what i try to do in in that chapter is really think about the line as like something that uh studio 54 you know didn't invent they didn't invent sort of the you know velvet robe and they didn't they didn't invent the kind of tight door policy where people are excluded or not in, not in, not allowed entry based on arbitrary kind of factors. Um, this was already happening, you know, um, in the Harlem Renaissance. It was already happening um, in different club spaces throughout time, um, which I found fascinating. And so for me, I think the interest was like, okay, what is it about human nature about like that we want to be in spaces where it's hard to get in? And I think I tried to look at that. So when I um, <clears throat> discovered um, sort of uh, okay, so there are so there are there's certain there are certain kinds of clubs in New York, for instance, where it's all about kind of glamour and you know kind of financial capital and money in certain ways in certain spaces where you know you might not get in because you don't have the right sort of shoe on or whatever or you don't have you don't look mm-hmm. expensive enough basically right. is what I, is what i'm saying or you don't look beautiful enough and so um when i got to berlin and i discovered that actually most clubs prefer people who seem more alternative like that for me was really interesting because i didn't 
know that before and I didn't um uh yeah it was just it was it was unusual to me basically to see like basically the people who would be who would be kind of having express entry to clubs in New York City for instance are precisely those who are turned away in Berlin yeah. in Berlin right. clubs <laughs> which I found fascinating <clears throat> um and so yeah I think for me like it is when you think about the kind of yeah uh, policies that privilege people who are more more alternative or more maybe marginalized or more less you know or less mainstream for me that is really about you know giving space to yeah i don't know it's about like saying no to the mainstream um right it's a it's a smart it's a smart distinction it's an it's hard to to sort of show and demonstrate but i think you do it very well in the chapter at least you you communicate that the there are differences in exclusionary practices and obviously someone could say well well letting in the letting in the people who wouldn't get let in in another club that's reverse racism but of course anyone who says reverse accuse you of reverse well, racism, it's not a thing right well that's <laughs> yeah Exactly. But also, it's just to say that they're, they're not able to tap into something about themselves that others are. I mean, it's a, it, it seems to me to be, um, they're just complaining about them about themselves, for, you know, and that, that um, there is something to be said about about people who, though it's risky, and uh, who are able to be fabulous. Yeah, I mean, I think there's something, you know, it's like, I don't. We all have the, we all have the potential, and that's what I'm saying. We all have the potential, so it's not like it's really exclusionary. But are you able to go there? Are you able to get there? Are you able to wear that spiky shoe? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's, you know, I think that like social spaces. I mean, I, yeah, I use the term, you know, that these these spaces are kind of curated and sculpted a certain way, and it's like basically once you get inside, you are like participating in. On the one hand, I mean, it's also branding, of course, you know, so you're also like participating in the kind of fantasy that the particular club wants to convey and have of itself. Um, you know, so door policies also are technologies that facilitate that. Um, but I think, you know, often, you know, I, in London, let's say, for instance, like door policy is not really a thing. So um, and I don't I don't I'm not sure if it's like a legal thing, if you're not allowed to do it, even kind of in New York club history, it was um, people sued 54 because um, of the of its draw policy, saying that it was exclusionary, you know, basically. Um, so, but there have been times when I've kind of been to parties here where I'm like, I just wish there were more of this kind of person or I wish that it was more like this. Right. And, you know, that's about yearning for community and people who are like more like-minded. So... Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's controversial, yeah. but I, I do well, think that I mean, it is about curating that space. You know? Yeah, it's inescapably controversial, but it not necessarily that's not necessarily a bad thing. And 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 being around people who are like you is is a question of the visual. It's a question of curating, yeah. curating the visual. Um, and yeah. also, it just points up to the fact that that um, nor, you know normativity or people who 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 conform to the norms they're wearing a costume just as much as anybody else. Except listen, their, their costume <laughs> is completely uninteresting. Their, listen. their their charade is failing. That's the point. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm glad you say that, right? Because that's for me. Also, I was you know the example that I was thinking in my head just now is like you know um, one of my worst nightmares would be to be like in a you know, right, like a pub with like, you know, a bunch of um, really bro-y, you know, guys. Like to me, that sounds, I, 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 I exclude myself from that situation, you know, because I don't want to be there. And, but for them, that's like, that's what they want. And that's great. 
I prefer to be in like other kind of spaces. And I think it's important to talk about when you think about door policy that people choose people like when you choose where to go at night, you've already you're already preselecting yourself also at that point because you're like, oh, well, I don't go to heaven because heaven is like this. I don't go to that club because this club is like that. So you're already right. The discrimination yeah. before you the dis- get there. Discrimination happens all the time, and that's just how we get through the day. Um, yeah. In in the choices that we make. So we 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 only have a minute left, but I just wanted to ask you where you were going next. What's your next project, or what are you thinking about? Uh, well, on this topic, my the book is um, the next book is called uh, How to Go Clubbing, and it's a book about uh, precisely about club culture. Um, it is going to be out on Yale press and, um, yeah, I'm also working on a performance, um, an, an immersive performance lecture that's also about club culture. Oh, um, wow, that's great. So for me, I see the projects as united. So on the one hand, you know, the book, the study about club culture and the value of pleasure and not being afraid of pleasure. And then, uh, kind of an immersive, this immersive lecture that's about kind of club culture that draws on sound and image and DJing and um, kind of, you know, yeah, that's, right. that's the piece. Yeah. <laughs> that's wonderful. I mean, to extend it to even lecturing or, you know, quote unquote lecturing or communicating about the book that there, the, the lecturing and communication, it can be as, you know, performative as anything and, and should be really an extension of the book, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and this is something that I, um, you know, definitely owe to other um, innovative uh, performance scholars, scholar artists like Kareem Kuchamdani, um, E. Patrick Johnson, who are also, you know, doing work around not only the, the kind of written work, but also bringing it into performance. And now you're part of that group. So we want to thank uh, Madison Moore for joining us uh, today on this uh, episode of New Books in American Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. The book, Uh, is called Fabulous, The Rise of the Beautiful Eccentric, and it's out now from Yale University Press. Madison, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's been great.